This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, we talk to the writer and editor Alan Taylor about two novels by Muriel Spark, The Girls of Slender Means and The Mandelbaum Gate. Published in 1963, The Girls of Slender Means is set in a London boarding house established for the social protection of ladies of slender means below the age of 30. Most of the action takes place in 1945, in the months between VE Day and VJ Day, and it concerns the lives of the unmarried inhabitants of the boarding house. The women are disrupted by the arrival in their midst of an anarchist intellectual, Nicholas Farringdon, who sets in motion a series of events that reveal both good and evil within the community. The Mandelbaum Gate is a very different novel from The Girls of Slender Means. Published in 1965 and set in Jerusalem during the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the novel follows a half-Jewish Catholic convert, Barbara Vaughan, as she makes a pilgrimage to Israel to meet up with her archaeologist husband. This is Spark's longest and most complex book, and it was described by Burgess as a well-wrought and stimulating novel, hard to forget. Born in 1918, Muriel Spark was a novelist, poet, essayist and biographer. Her novels are celebrated as pioneering works of postmodernism, and she was twice shortlisted for the Booker Prize. She is best known for The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, which was adapted for the screen in 1969, she lived in Edinburgh, southern Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, New York, Rome and latterly in Tuscany, where she died in 2006. Alan Taylor is the author of Appointment in Arezzo, a friendship with Muriel Spark. In 2018 he was the series editor of Spark's Collected Novels, published by Polygon to celebrate her centenary. His other books include The Assassin's Cloak, an anthology of the world's best diarists, and Glasgow, the autobiography. He was the founding editor of the Scottish Review of Books and the managing editor of The Scotsman. He's a long-standing member of the Scottish team on BBC Radio 4's Round Britain quiz. Alan's next book as editor is Madly Deeply, The Diaries of Alan Rickman, which will be published by Canongate in October 2022. He's currently working on a memoir which will include encounters with the likes of Gore Vidal, Alice Munro and Joseph Heller among many others. You can head to the description of this episode for all relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned. Here's Andrew Biswell from the Burgess Foundation, who spoke to Alan Taylor in April 2022. It's a great pleasure to welcome Alan Taylor to the 99 Novels podcast. Uh, welcome, 
Alan, your memoir, Appointment in Arezzo, A Friendship with Muriel Spark, is one of our points of departure for this podcast, along with the two Spark novels chosen by Burgess. Um, the, the first question is really about Spark in relation to Anthony Burgess. I'm very struck by how much they have in common, their identity as Catholic writers, their habitual exile, also the ambition and drive that led them to be so generous and productive as novelists. You met both Burgess and Spark, and I wonder if any of those similarities had occurred to you. Well, yes, they did. Um, I think what you got from both of them was a real dedication to their vocation, as you might call it. Um, they were considerable workaholics. Um, I remember meeting Burgess and, and, and seeing a man who sort of got up in the morning and wrote, wrote, wrote. Um, I, I seem to remember rightly that um, he, if you wanted to commission him, you had to go through his wife, but he basically himself never turned down anything. Um, I think Muriel was quite like that, although she was she had, she had a sort of no button on her computer or typewriter or whatever. Um, she knew when not to do stuff. She knew um, how to sort of disassociate herself from things so that she could get on with her work. I think um, Anthony Burgess was was much more uh, apt to sort of get involved in, in the fray and to be distracted. Um, in, in that respect, I think they were a bit different. But yeah, the Catholicism, the exile, um, their involvement in letters, um, you know, they were extremely well read, both of them, um, and, and they knew where they were coming from. And also their desire to break new ground. They didn't want to write the same novel time after time. That'll come out, I'm sure, in our discussion of the Spark novels. Burgess chose The Girls of Slender Means as one of his 99 novels. Uh, this book set in a boarding house for single women in Kensington during the Second World War. Burgess describes it in 99 novels as a book that looks down on human pain and suffering with a kind of divine indifference. And I wonder what you make of that. Does that sound like a reasonable assessment of The Girls of Slender Means? Up to a point, I think. I don't think, you know, divine indifference was sort of Muriel's point of view. I mean, the one thing you get from reading any Muriel Spark novel is that the person in charge of it is somebody called Muriel Spark. Uh, she was the ultimate omniscient author. Um, but I, I, I kind of can understand why Burgess would say that, because Spark creates, uh, makes you ask questions about, Who's writing this? Why are they writing it? What are they writing about? What is the point of view? What is the dominant point of view? And so she's always quite difficult to put a handle on, and, and therefore she's open to, to many interpretations. Yeah, I will say about um, Burgess's sort of little spiel about the novel, it was incredibly perceptive. And my only regret about the actual piece in, in the book on the girls of slender means is it's so short i would have liked him to, to write more about it um but um that's something we can talk about but uh muriel was very much the omniscient author i remember once at a book festival event um somebody said a young person in the audience asked her um had there ever been a case when she was writing a novel that one of the minor characters had sort of arisen and taken over the novel and, and, as it were, done more than she'd intended. And Muriel was completely bemused by this. She said, well, I've heard there are some authors who think that happened. She says, but 
I'm writing the novel. I'm the only person in charge. Nobody, no character can do anything that I don't want them to do. Uh, Burgess, you're right. He he does have um, uh, quite extended views on, on Sparks' work beyond this one. Indeed, he was one of the first people to review The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie when that was published in book form uh, in 1961. He happened to be the fiction critic of the Yorkshire Post, uh, a very serious literary paper in those days. Um, and he was the anonymous TLS reviewer of The Mandelbaum Gate when, when that came up. But we'll, we'll come to that slightly later on. Uh, I'm very struck with The Girls of Slender Means by the figure in the book of Nicholas Farringdon, the, the unpublished writer who uh, is a bit of a failure, I suppose. He ultimately becomes a priest. And you've written in, in your book about uh, Spark's involvement with Derek Stanford, a broadly similar figure who exploited Spark by writing a very inaccurate book about her. I, I wonder whether these failed writers who, who crop up so often in Spark's novels are, are often linked to that experience of, of knowing uh, Derek Stanford. Oh, definitely. But also knowing the other writers who sort of talked a good book, as it were, in the pubs of Soho, but actually never produced it. Um, Muriel was very aware that, you know, that, that you needed application to, to write a novel. And she met many kind of poseurs in, in the pubs of, um, of, of Soho at that time. And, you know, memoirs of the uh, 1950s, 60s uh, tell us who these people were. Stanford, um, poor, unfortunate Derek Stanford, uh, who appears as a piseur de copie in A Far Cry from Kensington, um, she was his former lover and, and they fell out. She basically sort of, um, she, she, she became famous and he did not. She had the talent and he did not. Uh, but he then became something of a, a leech um, and, a, and a nuisance and began to write about her and write about her in the most inaccurate and, and fanciful ways. And so whenever she could get the chance to take revenge, she did. And I think Farringdon, is perhaps one of those people who uh, is, is drawn from her experience with Derek Stanford. Um, it was very unfortunate, but uh, she, was, she did believe in revenge, Muriel, and the best way for her to get revenge was to write about it in a novel. I, I think there are other points of uh, overlap with Burgess too, as you're talking about the, uh, the, the world of this book, 1940s, London, Fitzrovia, Dylan Thomas is mentioned, uh, and various other... Um, you know, quite prominent poets of the day. And, and that too comes into Burdis's autobiography. I mean, long before he got published, but he was hanging around with that crowd. And it does give us, though it's a short book, uh, a very strong flavour of what it was like to be, um, you know, a, a single woman, as, as many of the characters in the book are, uh, inhabiting London. Uh, and also there, there's, uh, there's great fun, the, the satire of the, the publishing industry. There's George, the shady publisher who employs Jane, uh, and she insists on doing her brain work, as she calls it, um, <laughs> in her room and, uh, and putting shillings in the meter and so forth. Now, the, this club where the women live, the May of Tech Club, it's really a kind of boarding house. At one point, it suggested that it's a microcosm of British society during the Second World War. And holding on to that idea... I wonder why do you think the club is destroyed by fire at the end of the novel? What meanings should we attach to this, this catastrophe that happens at the end of the book? Oh, goodness. <laughs> uh, that's a very, very, very big question. Um, I think that 
you know, I've been thinking very hard about the girls of Slender Means again because of us doing this chat and, um, and, and sort of trying to kind of discern where Muriel was coming from and what her ultimate view was. And if you read the last few pages of the novel where it's the VJ Day celebrations and it happens uh, while the people are waiting for the royals to appear at the balcony at um, Buckingham Palace and in the crowd, a man stabs, seems to stab his girlfriend and murder her. Um, and, and this seems to me that Muriel is saying, well, the war may be ended, but humankind will go on being cruel and evil come what may. And it's a very pessimistic view of life, but I think it kind of reflects what, where Muriel was, was coming from. And I suspect that same kind of pessimism is invoked in the in the fire that destroys the club because it, here are these girls deluded naive innocent and and they're going to be destroyed and consumed in a fire the fire always associated with, with hell and um i think that you know muriel had a very bleak view of humankind because she'd sort of seen what was happening in the in the world during the war although she wasn't in London for much of it, she only came back to London towards the end of the war. But she'd been at um, the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem and she uh, looked evil in the face, as it were. And uh, when she came to write The Girls of Slender Means, this was her chance to sort of put her mark about that on the page. What I would say though, Andrew, it's a kind of interesting book, this The Girls of Slender Means, because it is very slim, it's very tight, it involves um, a kind of enclosed society. Muriel loved enclosed societies and it involved girls at a certain point in, the, in their life. And it's always seemed to me, although Muriel never said this, that this was a sort of sequel of sorts to the prime of Miss Jean Brodie, that these could almost be the girls who are part of the Brodie set um, several years on as they're just about to make their way in life. Um, and I think, it, 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 it's similar to that book in many respects, the repetitions, um, the absurdities, the fun she has with um, religion, um, and that wonderful kind of evocation, as you said, of the, the London publishing scene at that time. It's also, I mean, thinking of The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, it, it's a book that plays very similar games and, and tricks with time. Because we, we jump from the 1940s to the 1960s, where one of the the characters, uh, Nicholas. In fact, he he dies. I mean, that's yes. that's not a spoiler because we, we learn that yeah. right at the front of the novel, yes. really. Um, but it, it made me, uh, as it did you, think back to Miss Jean Brodie and the sense that that you know periods of time can exist simultaneously in memory. This is this is in many ways how we experience time. It's not in that kind of linear way, but in that that sort of wispy, foggy way. Um, yes. And and it's that there are broad similarities there. Um, I think Smart often writes very well uh, about London at the end of the war. For example, in Loitering with Intent, which you identify in your book as one of her best novels. What did that formative period, when she was involved with the poetry society and so forth, what did that mean to her as a writer? Do you think? Well, this was the beginning of her professional life as a writer. You know, she had been um, brought up in Edinburgh. She'd emigrated to South, to, to Rhodesia, what was then Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, um, to, to be married. The marriage turned out to be a complete disaster. And she was only able to come back to Britain later on um, 
when the war was kind of petering out. And so she arrived in London as a single woman, but a mother. Um, and her son was uh, in Edinburgh and she was in London. And she had to make a living as a writer, really, or someone on the kind of fringes of the literary world and take whatever job she, she could to sustain herself, but also to be able to send some money back uh, to her um, son and her parents living in, in Edinburgh. And so she, she had a very sort of rich immersion in the literary culture of the late 40s, 50s, and up to a degree, 60s. Um, and she had a very sardonic view of it because she had a very gimlet-eyed um, take on the literary life. Um, she, she, she wasn't one really to romanticize it. Um, and I think that's because she was an outsider, not because she was an outsider because she'd come from Africa. She was an outsider because she'd come from Scotland. And, and Scots arriving in London were sort of seen on the make. They were supposed to try and make it in London. Um, and, and Muriel took these, these jobs um, just because she needed a wherewithal to get started as a writer. Um, and the job at the Poetry Society, for example, was a complete and utter disaster. That's where she met infamously Mary Stopes, who uh, famous for birth control, but not famous for writing poetry. And she and Muriel were enemies. Muriel said of her that, you know, it was a pity that Mary Stopes's mother hadn't discovered birth control. <laughs> um, uh, another act of revenge that Muriel had. But it was in London, in that sort of rich literary culture of the time that, that she began to sort of make her way as a writer. I, I think one of the other points about the book that very much appealed to Burgess is that um, we discover towards the end of the book it, it's also a kind of well it's a religious book a, a sort of conversion narrative Nicholas um, though the presentation is very ambiguous he seems to make the sign of the cross just before the building uh, the club is destroyed by fire and I think that that connects the girls of slender means with some of the other novels Burgess is very excited about for example Brideshead Revisited and, and the end of the affair um, Graham Greene's um, wartime novel. Um, so the, the other point, I suppose, is Gerard Manley Hopkins, The Wreck of the Deutschland is all over the book, is frequently quoted. And uh, in the mid-70s, Burgess has a go at, at deploying that poem as, as Spark had done uh, in, in this novel, in, in a book of his own, The Clockwork Testament. Oh. Hopkins is one of his favourite poets, and, and he knew pretty much the complete works by heart and uh, it was a kind of natural thing for him to deploy that poetry and I, I think he sort of warmed to and responded to, um, to Sparks uh, own use of Hopkins and other poets as well in, in the book. Um, we should say it's also a comedy I mean that this business of the uh, the girls of slender means when they're threatened by the fire um, there's a very small window in the bathroom and the, the girls who are trapped on the top floor of the building have to try and squeeze through the window and some can and others can't because they're, they're they're too large. I think the window's about seven inches wide or something, a slit window. Um, and that aspect is interesting to me as well, um, whether or not we should think of this as a comic novel. Do you have any views on that? Oh, so many. Um, well, first of all, The Wreck of the Deutschland um, is a kind of inspired choice for her, for Muriel to give uh, Joanna Child, the, the elocutionist, the elocution teacher, um, uh, to use um, 
you know, first of all, it's, um, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful poem. It's, uh, um, but at the same time, you know, the wreck of the Deutschland. We were writing, you know, as Deutschland is being wrecked. Um, and uh, Burgess sort of illuminated that for me. I have to say, I've read the book many times and just thought, well, it's a great poem to choose if you're an elocution teacher to get your tongue round. But, but at the same time, it sort of does have this great echo of what's happening to, to Deutschland as, as the war comes to, to a close. And uh, there's also the kind of great comedy also, well, not um, of, of these girls who are kind of living in this society that they, they, they themselves are completely bemused by, that they, they, they're all kind of comic characters and, and the strings are being pulled by, by Spark. The other thing about the Burgess note is that um, he sort of reminds us that, you know, the, there's a bomb in the garden of the Mayoth Tech Club and the worry is that this will, will go off. Well, you know, what's brought the war to an end? The atom bomb. Uh, and so here is Muriel taking the atom bomb and, and making it local, as it were. Um, so, as you say, Andrew, this is all done in the context of a comedy. You know, it's the book is written with the lightest of touches. It sort of bounces along and it's very easy to sort of um, deny its seriousness when, um, when, when, when you can be laughing so much. Uh, and, and this is kind of Muriel's genius. She's she, she tugs us every which way. Yeah, that's certainly been my experience as I'm reading it. I'm, I'm highlighting passage. I, I wanted to go back and, and sort of read them again for the, the sheer pleasure of it. So though it, it is on the face of it, you know, quite a short book. It's about 140 pages, but it, it's a book to, to live in and inhabit. Um, and also I'm full of admiration for the construction of it. As you say, it's a, a closed society. It's this group of women sharing their accommodation but also the way she sets it between uh, VE Day and VJ Day, just in that short period of time. Again, that's a really successful decision, I think. It's a, it's a real gem of a book. Can I just ask you, um, I mean, uh, Burgess was one of several people who really just did not, initially at least, get the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. And I'm kind of astonished by this. I think, well, why was that? Because almost, well, in terms of a way, the way the book is written, it's hard to think of a more perfect book. And it, it, it does what it does so absolutely brilliantly. And yet he and others seem to think this was just a piece of froth. I don't understand it because there's so much in the book to tell you that it's not a piece of froth. I think he warmed to it later on. I mean, he did. one of the, one of the, the disadvantages of, of uh, reviewing for a living, and he was reviewing all the new fiction for the Yorkshire Post at this time, is that uh, he was kind of diving into books and, and having to write about them often the, the same day he'd read them. Um, I think when he comes to write his more considered histories of the novel, he sort of gets it. The other thing I'd point to is, is perhaps the influence of, of Miss Jean Brodie, the way that the chronology is so carefully thought through and crafted. Uh, and you can you can work it all out. It's it's absolutely spot on. And I think when he came to Plan Earthly Powers, it was probably one of the books that he referred back to. Because I, yes. I think there are similarities in in that though clearly it's a, it's a different scale. Yeah. Um, you know, Earthly Powers is Burgess's longest book. But I think he's learned a lot from reading Spark and from reading other contemporary fiction, especially in the early 60s, which is the period when he was at his most active as a reviewer. 
Um, we should move on to, to say something about the second Spark novel selected by Burdis in 99 novels, which is The, Mandel, the Mandelbaum Gate. It's a, another kind of semi-serious novel uh, set in Jerusalem during the Eichmann trial of 1961. Uh, very interesting for Burdis as well, because this is the period when he was writing A Clockwork Orange the same year. Now, for Spark, this is her longest book by reputation. I'm afraid it's one of her least successful. Burgess, who obviously liked it more than many, calls it her only attempt at a full-size novel, a well-wrought and stimulating book that is hard to forget. Um, and I wonder, I mean, clearly it's a very large tapestry. It's a very ambitious book in all kinds of ways. How successful do you find it uh, as a reader of Spark? Well, it's, it's for, for most readers of Spark, they, they would come to it and think, this doesn't seem like Muriel Spark. That'd be the first initial reaction to it. Um, as you say, it's, it's much bigger than most of her other books. Um, and this was deliberate. Um, she felt, I think, at the time that um, the prime machine brewery hadn't quite got the appreciation it really deserved. And she perhaps felt that slightness was um, equated with lack of seriousness. And so she set out to write a big book. My view is it's a completely underrated book and deserves much more considered evaluation. I think it's a remarkable book in many respects. And the more often I read it, the more muriel it seems. Um, there are sort of nuggets all the way through that could go into any other Muriel Spark novel. Uh, there are occasions, I think, where it's obvious she was having problems with it. The, the, the genius of, of a short novel, like The Girls of Slender Means, Prime Miss Jean Brodie, or Driver's Seat, for example, is that you can contain that book in your head and you're, you're in control of almost every word that, that you're putting down. Um, it's a different story with a, a, a bigger book like The Mandelbaum Gate, uh, whereas those books, the earlier books I mentioned, could be written in, in just a few weeks, and they were written in a few weeks, the Mandelbaum Gates um, creation took much longer, and there were periods where she really had trouble working on it and, and holding on to it and progressing it. Um, but I think in some ways it's maybe her most autobiographical book. Um, Barbara Vaughan, the, the, the heroine, if we want to call her that, has very marked similarities to Muriel. It's a quest for identity. It's about Muriel's articulation of her, her own position in life. And was she a Jew? Is she a Gentile? Can you be both? Um, she, she was wrestling with uh, her uh, own religious uh, situation. And she was then kind of looking at the post-war um, retribution, the Eichmann trial, as you say, but also the, the division between um, the, the factions in, in the Middle East. So it's a big, big book, political, religious and literary. It's very interesting. Through Eichmann, you've got there rumbling away in the background all the time. Um, the, the, the problem of evil, which has to be confronted, can't be avoided. Uh, Burgess, in his commentary on the Mandelbaum Gate, he, he describes it as a fantastic thriller. Uh, yes. I think that's an interesting take on it as well. It talks about mad disguises, unexpected sexual exploits and so forth. Um, but th there's something 
very interesting about the setting. Uh, Jerusalem, the, the, the divided city, a very turbulent place in all kinds of ways, and the way she populates it with such strong characters. Freddie Hamilton, another failed poet. You actually get to read his poems as well. Now, this is the world of uh, Burtis's Enderby books as well, where <laughs> the, the sort of slightly ambiguous poet, you, you think, is he the real thing or is he just playing with it like you know th these other uh, ambiguous writers in, uh, in Spark? But, but also, as you've said, Barbara Vaughan, a Roman Catholic who describes herself as a half Jew. She, she clearly shares some of her background with Muriel Spark herself. There's also Miss Rickwood, famous for her hairy legs, Abdul Ramdez, an Arab who's grown up in Jerusalem and Cairo, Harry Clegg, who's waiting for his marriage to be annulled. That's a, a very large tapestry, very yes. ambitious in all kinds of ways. And I, I think that's that's part of the richness. It's what I enjoy is, is almost getting lost in, in this narrative and the variety of character, which perhaps that there's there's not enough space in the shorter novels you want to almost sort of devour them in a single sitting. You're almost invited to devour them in a single sitting. I mean, she used to say on the few times she would appear in public that she felt, you know, sorry for her readers, that she was kind of shortchanging them. They were being asked to pay the full price for a novel, but they weren't getting War and Peace. And um, she said she sometimes felt rather sorry for, for that. She, she wished she could do something about it, but her instinct was, was towards brevity. Um, I, I, I mean, I love the fact that somebody was famous for their hairy legs. That's a wonderful kind of murialism. And there's always someone in one of her novels who's famous for something daft like that. Um, and, and I think it's, it's a great kind of thing. You can go through her novels spotting the people who are famous for somebody's famous for sex in the prime of Miss Jean Brodie. But the thriller aspect is something too to, to remark upon that... Um, uh, Gabriel Yosipovici, uh, when he wrote the introduction to the collected spark, which I, which I asked him to do, he, he talks about how she sort of plays with genres, you know, the, the crime thriller a la Hitchcock, um, the spy adventure a la Eric Ambler, um, a coming-of-age novel. There's, there's lots of novels packed into this fattish novel, you might say and Muriel would do this very self-consciously she liked she liked reading uh, thrillers um and, but she liked to sort of debunk them too you know with prolepsis and uh, the, the, the idea of kind of spoiling the, the, the denouement um I think she felt that the thriller had become rather sort of pedestrian and needed a bit of re-energizing but she can do all this in the in the course of a, in a of a very serious novel and this is a very serious novel it's not quite as light on its feet as uh, the girls of slender means. And you're quite right. It is a, a kind of sleeper within the spark canon. Um, and looking at it again, I'm struck by um, the, the sort of aphorisms and, and the, these wonderful sentences that I'm sure nobody else could have written. For example, towards the end, Barbara, you know, kind of thinking to the reader. So, sex is child's play, she thinks. Jesus Christ was very sophisticated on the subject of sex and didn't harp on it. Uh, and so it goes on. It's a very quotable book in many ways. And, and uh, one, like you, I'd, I'd recommend to, to people who know Spark primarily through the, the, the shorter novels or the, the, the poems. It's also controversial, I think, in, in, in the sense that Barbara, if she is kind of um, the Spark figure in the book, um, She's she's half Jew, but on her mother's side, and um, uh, uh, sorry, is it half Jew on her mother's side? 
um, and half Gentile on her father's side. Um, whereas Muriel was the other way around. She was half Jew on her father's side. Um, and Jewishness, at least according to um, Jewish law, uh, comes through the, the female side. And so this was Muriel putting down a marker about who she was and how she should be allowed to choose what she is, you know, Jew, Catholic person. And in your book, you, you write so so well and so clearly about the, uh, the, the terrible uh, controversy that, that erupted when Robin, her son, went into print, um, you know, arguing with his mother about her ancestry and her identity and so forth, uh, which must have been a very, you know, kind of harrowing um, business for, for all concerned, I'm sure. Can you imagine that playing out in public? <laughs> it was pretty awful. It played out in the pages of the TLS and national newspapers. And, you know, there was a correspondence between Muriel and Robin themselves. But then this became public because when people asked her her opinion, she was brutally honest. Reading Sparks' fiction, thinking about her life as well, I'm often struck by how how fresh and how contemporary her novels are. I think in the past, maybe some critics have looked down on her because she didn't have a university education or something, but revisiting this work, I do think it's informed by a very sophisticated awareness of the potentials of the novel, what the form can be. Uh, and there is a question here. I, I wonder, do you think her work has in some ways in the past been misread and undervalued? Without a doubt. Um... To this day, I think it's, it's undervalued. Um, I'm a bit bemused by that. I don't quite understand it. I, I would have thought that, especially people with a literary hinterland, would, would get it and, and would be uh, more attuned to it. Um, but for some reason, they aren't. Um, you know, readers say silly things like, you know, she doesn't like her characters. There are no likable characters in these books. She's cruel to them. Uh, and you think, well, grow up. Um, it's about time you, you, you did. Um, she's also um, unsentimental. People are dispatched in the same way as they are in The Sopranos, almost. Um, she, uh, she, she, has, she, has, she makes fun of people. Um, she, uh, she would be decried nowadays for, for things like what we call body shaming. Um, uh, there's so much that, um, that's in her novels that demands um, people kind of study. Um, I, I find it bemusing that um, she isn't as well appreciated as she should be. It's interesting you mentioned that she didn't go to university. I, I've always thought that was a plus. Um, <laughs> I, I would have thought this going to university and being forced to study the canon kind of makes you cast a, a glance over your shoulder every time you set out to put a sentence on the page. And Muriel, I think, in latter life, felt that um, it had been a good thing not to go to university. She said herself that um, all her contemporaries were going to Edinburgh University. Um, eventually, they'd all become school teachers. But what were they doing at university but writing essays on John Donne? And she could do that already. She had no need to write essays on John Donne. Um, and I, I, I feel that... It would be better for the literary culture of our times if more people read Muriel Spark and a, and a lot less of a lot of other writers. Absolute agreement with all of that. Spark didn't write any more long novels after the Mandelbaum Gate. Why do you think she took that decision to pursue shorter forms after 1965? Well, she did and she didn't, Andrew. I mean, th things like um, 
the takeover and territorial rights are, are reasonably long by her standards. But, but it is true to say that she felt much more comfortable with a, a shorter book. Um, I think that she regarded the prose as a sort of form of poetry in a way. And anybody who reads aloud her books certainly gets that sense. There's a sort of music to them that you don't often get in, in most writers of fiction. Um, I think that she, her preferred mode was to, to write by hand and, and that kind of, um, it, it's easier uh, to write shorter novels by hand uh, than, than longer novels. Um, and right to the end, her final novel, The Finishing School, was another novel set in, in an enclosed society. And, and that, that kind of suits somebody like Sparks' sensibility. I don't think we should underestimate the, the, the trouble she had from time to time writing novels. She, she would occasionally check into a, a sort of hospital to remove herself from sort of daily uh, travails so that she could get on with writing her novels. And she found it really very difficult to, to sort of disassociate herself. It was often said of her that she was reclusive. She wasn't at all reclusive. She was an incredibly sociable person. But when she started on a novel, nothing could um, divert her from it. And uh, I think that she just had more comfort writing shorter novels. I think in another life, she would rather have been a poet. Well, that was really one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because she began as a poet, and, and she once suggested in her interview with Frank Kermo that she wanted her novels to be read as, as the work of a poet, if not as poems uh, as such. Uh, I wonder how far you find that helpful as a way of understanding her work. One of the things that critics have said about her work is that, that why does she have all this repetition? Um, but I think that repetition, you know, gives the, the sort of books, the, the prose, their music. Um, that's her kind of way of writing poetry into the novel. It's, it's when you come, it's like a chorus. Um, and I think that she, she felt that um, she was, her poetry, I think, has some, she has some wonderful poems, but in, in general, she's a better uh, novelist than she is a poet. And I, I don't know why that is. I think um, it may be that if she'd concentrated entirely on poetry, um, we would have had many more poems uh, that, that are up to the standard that she would like to have had. Uh, but the problem was, you, how do you make a living as a poet? Well, about the only way you could do that is, is by finding a job in academe. And I don't think that would have suited Muriel at all. Uh, you mentioned her fondness for Stevenson's poems and the Border Ballads. Did she often recite them? Did she often recite them? Yes, she did. Um, you, you know, if you were born in Scotland at a particular time, and even in my time, uh, you, you went through school learning ballads like the Ballad of um, Sir Patrick Spence or the Twa Corbys. And um, she could recite these um, verbatim. And at length, no trouble at all. In fact, often did. We would be sitting in the kitchen in her house in Tuscany on a winter's evening drinking red wine. And she, she would uh, give me the, the whole of the ballad of Pat, Sir Patrick Spence and, and love to do it. Um, it has a sort of very eerie quality, these. It's like, you know, listening to the Three Witches and Macbeth. One of the other things that connects Burgess and Spark is they both decided to move to Italy in the 1970s. In Spark's case, first to Rome and then to Tuscany. Why do you think she was drawn to Italy as a place to, to write and a place to be? Well, I suppose the obvious answer is um, 
Catholicism. Uh, you know, way back, uh, well, the Prime Minister Jean Brodie came out in 1961, I think. Um, it's heroine, Jean Brodie, uh, takes her holidays in Italy, her summer holidays from school in Italy. And Muriel was much influenced by her teacher, the model for uh, Jean Brodie, Christina Kay, who would spend her holidays, her school holidays in Italy, and then would come back and tell her students, the creme de la creme, as she called them, uh, about her time in Italy and about the great art that she'd seen. And um, by the way, about Mussolini and his fascists and their wonderful uniforms. And so I think Italy had become totemic for Muriel one way or another from her school days on. And then uh, when she had the kind of great success of the prime machine Brody and she was fated all over New York, where she was living at the time, it began to oppress her. She began to feel that um, this wasn't healthy from her point of view as a writer. Um, the demands on her were too many. And she began to look, a, look for a place to escape to. And she thought, well, we're, we're better than Rome. And uh, that's where she removed to. So it had the allure of Catholicism. It had the history with Miss Jean Brodie. And it was a place she could go to and perhaps feel comfortable in. And also it was affordable, it was cheap. You often stayed with Spark in her house in Arezzo in northern Italy. What do you remember most strongly about that place? Oh, I remember it um, vividly. <laughs> um, in fact, uh, if all goes to plan, I'll go later this year and spend some time with Penelope, her companion, who's still living there. It's a sort of high on the hill in the Val di Chiana, uh, below a little town, a uh, little village, really, uh, called Civitella, uh, deep in the Tuscan countryside, surrounded by vines and, and olives. Uh, the house was a former rectory, uh, so it had a little chapel uh, next door to, to the actual house, and it had been occupied by a priest who kept a kind of harem. And uh, it had many rooms, more rooms than I was ever in myself, um, it still has many of Muriel's things in the house, including a lot of her clothes. Uh, it had a small kitchen with a huge open fire. There were cats and dogs. Uh, in the evenings, often Muriel would invite people uh, from the kind of greater hinterland to come round and, and have supper, or we would go to them. There's nothing in Italy to travel an hour, two hours to, to have uh, supper with people. And you opened the shutters in the morning, the sun was up, and you could look right across the Val di Chiana, wonderful vista. And you thought, well, why on earth would you live anywhere else? But the other thing I think about that place and Muriel's association with it is when she looked out that window and saw this wonderful view, it reminded her of Scotland. It reminded her of the borders, in the place of the border ballads, with the dry stained dikes, the small fields, and the long vistas. And the only difference was it was extraordinarily cold in Scotland and wonderfully warm in Italy. Now, one of the things you describe in your memoir is Muriel Sparks' engagement with um, the manuscript of her biography that Martin Stannard had been working for some years on a big book uh, about her. And she disagreed with it for many reasons, for factual reasons. And you, you write very memorably about her uh, annotating 
this manuscript, sitting with it, I think, on her kitchen table and reading passages aloud and so forth. Could you say slightly more about that decision to appoint a biographer in her lifetime and, and perhaps why that didn't go as smoothly as it might have done? First of all, uh, you know, it's relations between biographers and uh, their subjects, especially if the subjects are alive, are, are often fraught. Uh, Muriel had read Martin Stannard's biography of Evelyn Waugh and had liked it and had written to him to say how much she'd liked it. I think there was some kind of correspondence between the two and Muriel had basically said that, um, or he had said, if, if you're ever looking for a biographer, then I might be interested. Or Muriel might have said to him, you know, if I'm interested in ever having a biographer, um, I, I might uh, ask you. Uh, and I think that's what happened. That she, she was an impetuous person, Muriel. She did things through feel and she appointed a biographer without really having gone into it in, in much detail. It, it, certainly without having really got to know the person who was going to be her biographer. And there was just no chemistry, first of all, between them. Um, I think that that was a problem. Um, they just didn't gel. And then when uh, Martin Stannard began to sort of work on the biography, Muriel began to feel alarmed and, and, and worried about what this might entail and, and what might be produced at the end of it. And when the first drafts were shown to her, uh, she was horrified. Um, she, she hated almost everything about it. Um, she thought it was factually inaccurate, which it, it was in many respects um, in its drafts. And she didn't like the tone of it. She didn't like the way it was written. She felt that she didn't recognize the person who was in it. And um, it was extremely painful uh, to, to have to um, live with that. And I think it cost her a couple of books. When you think of Muriel Spark and her work as a whole, you've made a, a very good case for, for the way in which her, her fiction, much of it is rooted in, in Edinburgh and her formation there. Um, is she a Scottish writer, a European writer, a world writer, or all of these things? How, how do you think of her? The one thing you've not said is a female writer, is what people keep saying. <laughs> but she's all of these things. And the one thing she, she, she's not is an English writer. Um, she writes in English, but she, she's not an English writer. And she certainly would correct anybody who would say that of her. Um, when I asked her uh, to describe herself, because she was judging a short story competition that I'd helped start, she called herself Scottish by formation. And I think that is an extremely good description of what she is, that um, she was formed in Scotland uh, through the landscape, through the climate, through her family, through religion, uh, through history. But once she'd left Scotland, she became a different kind of person um, in the sense that she became a writer. Uh, but she knew that the first 18 years of her life were the most crucial part of her life and that thereafter um, she would be excavating that life um, in, in, in the kind of Scottish manner. And I think you can read her books and see her Scottishness coming through, um, through the pores of it. You know, the the, the humour, the undercutting, the unsentimentality, the interest in history, the cutting through the bullshit, 
these are all kind of typically Scottish things. Even the curtness, the shortness of the book is quite Scottish. You know, we want to get on with things and make a decision. And I think Muriel had all that. Um, you know, she was a very decisive kind of person. Didn't always make the right decisions, but she was decisive. And she was canny, feisty, um, wasn't going to be bullied. You know, and again, all of that comes through her books and through her personality. Which of her books would you recommend to somebody who never read any of them? I would recommend to any person who's interested in reading at the age of, say, 13, 14, 15, to read The Prime Minister Jean Brodie. It's not necessarily my favourite book, but I think it's an almost perfect book. And I think they, they should start by reading that because it will interest them in a life they might recognize in fact to this day you know i travel around edinburgh a lot and i get on the number 23 bus which goes through the whole heart of edinburgh and often you know i see school kids young uh, women uh, who've just come out of school all sitting in a gaggle five or six of them at the back of the bus and i immediately think aha the creme de la creme uh, but then i would say Loitering with Intent um, is the book that all uh, nascent writers should read. It has a fantastic tone to it. It's a very beautiful book um, and lets people see what the pitfalls of writing might be. And thereafter, you should read all the rest of the books. Um, I, 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 honestly, I, I've, never, I, I've never been bored reading Muriel Spark, and I don't know anybody who who has. Um, it's just that people do not seem to read, their, read her as much as they should. I think you've done great work in uh, curating and editing the, the collected works, which are now back in print and available once more, which is excellent. I, I've another question about Spark as a person. Uh, we've talked a lot about the work, though clearly, and as you've said, that, that her voice is on the page, the tone, the place, the character, she, she's there. Um, as you've argued in almost every sentence, but how do you remember her as a person? Well, the word that I kind of would use to sum her up is fun. Um, when I would go out with her, um, when we were in New York, say, or, or London, or even Edinburgh, or she came and stayed near where I now live, to go out for an evening with her was just the purest fun. She liked to have a glass of wine. She liked food. She wasn't a snob. She, she didn't care whether it was a top-class restaurant or just a, a diner. Um, but always something happened that made the evening memorable. And it might be something she said or something that she didn't say. But I remember her, her laugh. I remember, you know, she, she was a flirtatious person well into her 80s. And... Um, this was somebody you thought, well, this would be a good date to go on. Wonderful. It must have been quite an experience, not just to meet her, but to know her as uh, as well as you did. Um, and you've you've captured so much of that in your memoir, uh, in Appointment in Arezzo. Uh, we've one last question, which we, we ask everyone on the 99 Novels podcast. If you could add one novel published after 1939 to Burdis's list of 99, which one would it be? Well, I, I wished I remembered all the 99. And <laughs> um, so uh, forgive me if I mention one or two that um, 
he's got that. I know he did, he hasn't got the Prime Minister Jean Brodie, and I think this is a complete oversight. I don't quite understand that, and I need to talk to him in the afterlife about this. But um, the, the novel I would mention um, comes after 1984, but before Burgess's death, and it's long been a favourite of mine, is uh, John le Carre's A Perfect Spy, which I think is really le Carre's autobiography fictionalised. And I think, I don't know, is le Carre underrated? Certainly not by me, but I think that's a brilliant novel, um, which kind of intrigues me every time I read it. And if I had to choose one that was published before 1984, I would go for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Excellent. Well, uh, Burgess inevitably um, is aware of the, the world of Cold War fiction and Le Carre and parodies him uh, to great effect in uh, Tremor of Intent, his spy novel, which is kind of Len Dayton, Ian Fleming, but but ramped up to an absurd degree. Um, so very interesting choices. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining us on the 99 Novels podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Andrew. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Appointment in Arezzo, A Friendship with Muriel Spark by Alan Taylor is available now from Polygon. Madly Deeply, The Diaries of Alan Rickman, edited by Alan Taylor, will be published by Canongate in October 2022. The theme music is Anthony Burgess's Concerto for Flute, Strings and Piano in D minor and is performed by No Dice Collective. They can be found online at nodicecollective.com. For more information about Anthony Burgess and the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit www.anthonyburgess.org. If you have enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.